What does it mean to finish well? The title of our sermon today. When I think about finishing well, I do not think about my college career. (laughs) I went to college because it was the next thing to do. And because when you're entering into adulthood, your ability to build confidence in yourself is often much stronger than your ability to understand yourself. Seven years, three colleges, and more debt than I like to think about later, I waved goodbye to college. Finally got my undergraduate degree in the mail and immediately put it and any thought of using it in a box in my closet. I am thankful for those years of college, for the things that the Lord redeemed, and for a great deal learned in and beyond a classroom. But in terms of utilizing those years as steps on the road to further educational and career opportunities, I did not finish well. I did not finish well because I did not understand my own personality, what motivated me, and where my chosen path was taking me. This morning, we're going to look at what it means and what it takes to finish well by examining a speech by the Apostle Paul to some of his Christian brothers. I hope that each of us will be prepared to let God's Word challenge our status quo and perhaps even change the trajectory of our lives. We may treat life after death as a dim and uncertain thing, much as I viewed life after college, (laughs) not considering how our actions or inaction now will have consequences then. Paul brings a warning to the Ephesian elders that we would do well to heed also. Don't be deceived into thinking it's okay to let life happen to you. Be alert. Be careful. To finish well, you need to have the end in mind. God, we need your spirit to speak to us this morning. You know far better what our end will be than we. You know the steps it will take, that we will take on the road there. God, we need your guidance. Guide us as individuals, guide us as your church. Speak this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we return to our study of Acts, we once again begin a passage on the move. If you were here a year or two back when we were in our season of Lent, that may sound familiar. Paul has completed his final trip through Macedonia and Greece and... As we read in verse 16, he is hastening to be at Jerusalem. We've seen this sense of urgency building steadily over the last two chapters. Luke includes only the most necessary details to help us understand what Paul is doing as he revisits the churches he has planted, while repeatedly taking us through his itinerary in a rapid and condensed manner. We know, however, those of us who studied Acts for 20 chapters now, that Luke's intent is to save his emphasis for the details his reader, Theophilus, needs to understand about what occurred in the early years of the Christian church. This morning, we're going to appreciate again the gift that we have in Luke's writings, as we see in Acts a message with remarkable similarity to his gospel narrative. I said that on the move might be familiar. Back during that season of Lent, we preached a sermon that was on the road, Looking back 
to the beginning of Acts chapter 19, before Paul has left Ephesus, we read that he resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. This is an echo of the same language that we studied in Luke chapter 9, where in verse 51, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. I mentioned two weeks ago in studying the beginning of chapter 20 that Paul is imitating Christ in his care for and encouragement of the churches. But today we'll see more fully just how deeply that imitation goes. Paul is not just talking as Jesus talked. His life is following the same pattern of selfless service. And as we explore just what it means to finish well, we'll take note of Paul's testimony to the Ephesian elders that his life is looking to have a similar end to his master's. Sorry, Myrna. Doing all right? <laughs> That's all right. Today's text brings us up against the question of what it means to finish well through what might seem like an extreme object lesson. To many of us, Paul's life might seem to exist out on the fringe. We look at all he did, at all we've read of his trials, and the opposition that he faced. And it's unlikely that many of us can relate very closely. Going even further, we read in today's passage the first clear foreshadowing that the Holy Spirit gives of where Paul's narrative is going. And we are still further removed from the text. Can any of us here say that we expect imprisonment and afflictions? How about beheading? Sure, many of us have thought about the possibility of these things, likely more and more as we see the changes in the world around us. But are we certain, as Paul was, that this is what we are headed for? Does the imminent threat of imprisonment, violence, and premature death affect what we do with our time, our money, or our relationships? Probably not, not a lot for those of us here in Ellsworth, Maine. Removed as our experience might be from that of Paul's, we have a great deal in common with him. And this, too, we can fail to fully appreciate. Paul's human weakness is the same as ours. And the miracle of our salvation is just as glorious as his. The spirit that lived in Paul and called him to go and to preach to the Gentiles is the same spirit that ought to be directing our movements. And Paul's calling is the same as ours to take up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus. So, when we speak of finishing well, let's not forget that though our circumstances may look different, we are facing the same decisions Paul faced. Perhaps we're young and we have a long life ahead of us. Perhaps we don't have that much more time. Perhaps we'll be taken before our time. We don't know but we still have to make decisions every day on that path that the Lord has laid out for us. And in studying Paul's words to the Ephesian elders, we'll see that Paul, in every decision he made, was very intentional about leaving a legacy that glorified his Lord. Of course, before Paul can speak with the Ephesian elders, he must meet with them. You might imagine Paul's request to the elders as similar to having someone meet you at Dysart's off of Route 95. 
Paul does not want to be delayed, so he chooses somewhere that's easy for him to stop off at, have a meeting, and continue on. We begin reading in verses 13 through 16 that Paul is island hopping down along the western coast of Asia. The text doesn't state why Paul is hoping to be at Jerusalem by Pentecost, but in the context of all that Jesus has done and taught through his spirit among the believers, it's likely that Paul is hoping to celebrate the momentous occasion of the spirit's coming in the place that it first occurred with many of the people who experienced it firsthand. Another important reason Paul may have had for haste, which we gather from his letters, is the mission he had to bring a collection of money from the churches to support the church in Jerusalem, a church still living under the persecution of the Jews. Beyond these possible reasons is the explanation Paul gives in verse 22, that he is constrained by the Spirit. This word, constrained, implies a leading so strong as to almost be against Paul's will. The Spirit is tugging at Paul, driving him on, such that a detour to Ephesus is seen as too costly in time for him to take. Of course, if you have your map of first century Asia handy, you'll notice that the bay on which Ephesus sits is not that far out of the way. But remember that Paul spent over two years in Ephesus, teaching and building up the church. A visit to the city would have meant more than just extra distance. It would have meant the strong temptation to reconnect with all the people that he'd invested in, and perhaps even to assist in their work among the cities of Asia, such as at Colossae, where Paul's colleague Epaphras had planted a church. So, to avoid what might have been a joyous and profitable, but very time-consuming visit, Paul has the elders of the church head south and meet him at Miletus. This meeting at Miletus contains the longest speech to believers in the book of Acts. Luke perfectly captures Paul's style, and Paul's speech reflects his many letters in a lot of ways. It is a series of arguments that leverage Paul's personal relationship to his hearers and is built on the foundation of the gospel. And as we explore Paul's words, I want us to note four things. First, Paul is speaking to the elders. These are the men appointed to shepherd the flock in Ephesus. They are those judged to be mature and qualified in their faith. And they have taken on the responsibility of watching over the church. It's also worth noting that they will have a great influence on those to whom they minister. And so in speaking to them, Paul is in some ways speaking to the whole church. Paul states in verse 18 that these men know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. As he so often does, Paul lays his personal testimony before his audience, not to puff himself up, but to remind them that Paul's life is in perfect harmony with his words. Paul wants these men to remember that Paul's motives are pure and that he is not expecting from them any more or less than what he himself has already done among their church and those around. Second, note how Paul is addressing these men. This discourse, again, might be seen almost as a mini-epistle, and its tone is mainly one of admonishment. The English, English usage of admonish 
has narrowed its meaning um, to somewhat signify only a reprimand or a rebuke. But the Greek word here is broader in its scope. It means to put in mind, or we might say to bring to mind, and can also be translated as caution or warn. It's different than the encouragement that Paul was bringing to the churches in the beginning of chapter 20, but it's not entirely disconnected, especially in its aim. Paul's opening testimony of his own actions in verse 18 and his summation in verse 34 are both in the context of, you yourselves know. He's admonishing them. He's bringing to their minds what they already know. We see in this speech that Paul also states, I know, in verses 25 and 29. He's bringing to their attention the things that he is aware of. Paul wants their understanding and his to be aligned before he makes his plea to them. Paul's testimony is of the past in verses 18 through 21. A reminder to them of his humble service, of his trials, and of his bold declaration of the gospel. Then he moves on in verse 22 to an explanation of his present circumstances, that he is constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And finally, Paul lays forth what he understands of what is to come in verses 23 through 25, that imprisonment and afflictions await him, and that he will never see his Ephesian brothers again. With this accomplished, Paul declares, therefore, in verse 26, beginning the application of his argument, an exhortation of the elders to diligently carry out their duties after he is gone. This is the third thing to note. Paul's message is aimed toward preparing the elders of the Ephesian church for what is to come. Paul begins in verse 26 by declaring his own innocence of blood. Perhaps the most confusing statement of the passage on its face, it is seen to be a vital part of Paul's message when understood in the context of who Paul is speaking to. Paul is speaking to the elders, to the overseers, and with this statement in verse 26, it's quite possible that Paul has in mind Ezekiel chapter 33 and the imagery of watchmen. Here in Ezekiel, God is reminding Israel through his prophet of their own responsibilities. The first six verses of Ezekiel 33. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring a sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But... If the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Paul is stating clearly that he has fulfilled his duty as a watchman over the churches, that he has warned them of danger. He states plainly that this is the basis of his innocence in verse 27. For I did not shrink 
from declaring the whole counsel of God. With Paul having moved on as the Lord led, these elders now have the care of the Ephesian flock. And Paul is not going to give them any excuse to avoid their own responsibility. They are now the watchmen, not Paul. After stating his own innocence and therefore implying that the elders would be held to account for what is to come, Paul drives home his warning. Verse 28 is perhaps the linchpin of his appeal, containing Paul's direct instructions to the Ephesian elders and what should be at the heart of their conviction to follow those instructions. Paul writes, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, if we were going to do this passage full justice, we would probably have to sit on this verse for at least a month of sermons. It is remarkably rich in theological truth. But for this morning, let's at least break down the statements made and see their import. The verse opens with Paul's instructions, which clarify the themes of responsibility and watchfulness we've been talking about. It's important to note here, especially in light of the following verses, that Paul instructs the elders to pay careful attention to themselves as well as to the flock. The elders have their own humanity to contend with. Then, Paul states that it is the Holy Spirit who has made them overseers. We Congregationalists can often start to think that we're operating within a democracy. No matter what our church structure, it's very easy for us to think that we're the ones that are the movers and shakers. That it is the body who make the important decisions in a Congregationalist church, or in some structures it might be a, a pastor, or a bishop, or the pope. We think we make the important decisions, such as who leads. We Congregationalists vote after all, right? This is something we ourselves need to be reminded of. We need to be reminded, as Paul reminds the Ephesians here, that this is the church of God. In the church of God, the Spirit of God reigns. And it is through his work that men are grown and built up to maturity. And it is only by the Spirit that the body can rightly affirm an elder's qualifications and calling. This should be to us an elevation of the office of elder as the sovereign work of God. It should be doing us an elevation of the church of God, a caution for us to remember whose church this is. And for elders, it should be humbling to remember that it is the Lord who has brought them to where they are, and they are called to serve him. Paul concludes his charge to the elders in verse 28 by stating the ultimate foundational truth the reason there is a church of God, the reason that the Spirit is the prime mover of this group of humans, and the reason that such care ought to be taken by those in leadership. God has purchased this people with his own blood. Paul is under no illusions as to why these churches exist. It's not because one of the preeminent biblical scholars of the age traveled to their cities and taught them true things. It is because God loved them enough to take their punishment and break the chains that kept them from knowing, loving, and serving him. 
It is in Christ that the church of God finds its origin, its meaning, its purpose, and its destiny. And for Paul, this is the reason for he and for the elders to care about how they are doing their jobs. We belong to Christ. And those who are set over us, watch us for him. After driving home this reminder to the elders of why careful attention matters, Paul explains why careful attention is needed. He says in verse 29 and 30 that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We've already seen in Acts that disagreements, confusion, and opposition have arisen in the church. And this is likely another reminder to the elders as much as it may be a revelation of what Paul knows about the future. Indeed, in verse 31, Paul reminds the elders that he has been reminding them. He has been warning them. He has been admonishing them all along. Paul does not want the elders to forget that churches are full of humans, and they are surrounded by humans, and they are watched over by humans. Some in each of these categories will succumb to the rebellious inclinations of the human heart and seek to tear down the church that God has established. Even the elders, the shepherds of God's flock, are at risk of corruption because of their sinful human hearts. Rather than follow the example of the good shepherd that we read in Psalm 23 last week, some will emulate the shepherds that Scott spoke to us about from Ezekiel 34, who preyed upon the flock, rather than caring for it. And even though Paul states that he is innocent, he's still not willing to pass up one more opportunity to remind these men to be on guard, to do whatever he can to help them. For Paul himself, the relinquishing of his care for the church in Ephesus and the other churches is not the relief of someone looking to escape the toil of ministry. Paul is passionately concerned for the well-being of these people. And now as he commends them to God and to the word of his grace. He's acknowledging that there's nothing more that he himself can do to build them up, to bring them to where they need to be, to help them on. Paul's time is almost at an end. We still have eight more chapters of Acts to study through. Luke's narrative of the Spirit of God building the church of God is not ended. And Paul will get another chance to communicate in writing to the church at Ephesus. But here we need to see that Paul is living and speaking with his end in mind. He doesn't know, as we can know, what his end will be. Even so, Paul has been shaped by the Spirit and a life of continued obedience to the call of the disciple, so that even as Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, Paul is setting his face in the same direction without knowledge, without surety, in faith. And just as Christ took all that time on the road to Jerusalem to pour into his disciples and prepare them for his departure, so Paul is preparing these churches to carry on without his leadership. Just as Christ told the disciples what to expect, Paul is sharing with these Ephesian men hard truths about what they will face, that they need to be alert, that they need to take care. Jesus revealed to his followers the mysteries of the kingdom of God that the crowds were not able to hear. 
And Paul did not shrink from declaring to the Ephesians anything that was profitable, from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. Both of these men, the perfect, sinless son of God and the murderous idolater, hard-hearted and saved by his Lord's grace and mercy, they obeyed the leading of the Spirit and ran their course well. They both ran with tears. Jesus weeping over those who reject him. And Paul over those whose salvation he could not ensure and whose care he must entrust to God without knowing their end. I think you can say with confidence of Paul the same that John wrote of Jesus in John chapter 13, verse 1. That having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Paul is doing everything he can for these people. What does it mean to finish well? Back in Acts chapter 9, God told Ananias of Paul's destiny. God said Paul was a chosen instrument. We may not travel the world as Paul did and plant churches and speak before kings, but aren't we also chosen instruments of God? And might that imply that finishing well means playing the tune that God has designed us for? God also told Ananias, still speaking of Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. In terms of persecution and trials, I dare say that Paul has suffered more than any of us. But do you think perhaps there is suffering which you too will discover is part of your cross to bear? And might walking faithfully through that suffering be a part of how to finish well? In the last chapter of what is widely considered Paul's final letter, his second letter to Timothy, Paul writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. These three actions are written as parallels. Keeping the faith is not a passive belief that God exists and that he sent his son. It is like a fight. It is like a race. It is pressing on toward the goal. It is not shrinking back from declaring the whole counsel of God, both to yourself and to others, even when the blows are raining fast and thick. It is continuing to let the Spirit drive you on to obedience to God. Whatever your context, whatever your circumstances, whatever your challenges, wherever you're at, whether you're looking to begin an, a, a new phase of life, whatever it means, it means obeying God. It means looking to Him. And it's not leaving undone the things you know you ought to do before your time on this earth ends. This is what it means to finish well. But what does it take to finish well? Paul's speech to the elders ends similarly to where it began. Paul, again, defends his conduct among the Ephesians, likely knowing that when those fierce wolves come, they will seek to undermine Paul's teaching by souring the church's memory of him. But at the last, it is a statement of Jesus that Paul leaves with the leaders of the church at Ephesus, a spiritual reality that he hopes will be his lasting legacy, a proof 
that will help them to carry on, that they will see in his life and know as true in and of itself. It is more blessed to give than to receive. This is also where we are going to leave our focus for the rest of this morning. Paul's departure from Miletus and from these men is telling in its depth of feeling and its testimony of real relationships as part of how Paul planted churches. But for us, pondering how to finish well, we must look to the words of Christ. Paul is ready to finish well because of Christ. Look back up to verse 24 where Paul has just declared that imprisonment and afflictions await him at Jerusalem. Paul states, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish the course, finish my course, and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul is not emulating Christ passively or unconsciously, His life is taking the same shape as that of Jesus because Paul is wrapped up in all that Christ has done for him and the precious gift of gospel ministry Christ has given to him. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the pursuit of Paul's life. Is it yours? Perhaps that is a confusing question. How does someone pursue the gospel? Isn't the gospel a story? A story of what Jesus did thousands of years ago. Am I expecting you all to become historians? No, to both questions. The gospel is not just a story. It is not just the words on the pages of our Bibles. Just like faith is not a passive mental decision. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the air that the Christian breathes. It is the spiritual catalyst that changes all that we think, feel, say, and do. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. We speak of finishing well. It is only through the gospel that we can finish well. We need to understand how broken we are apart from Christ. Do you know how broken you are apart from Christ? Do you know your need for him? We need to recognize fully that our best intentions, our most sincere feelings, our most determined efforts are all going to be off by degrees and end up missing the mark by miles unless a power that is greater than our own writes what is wrong in us and takes control of the trajectory of our lives. We need Jesus. He is what it takes to finish well. We need the one who for the joy set before him The joy of our salvation from sin endured the cross. He set his face to go to Jerusalem and finished well for us. Imagine if Jesus had not finished well. Imagine if having set his face, he turned back. If Christ was not killed and then raised to life, then we are still in our sins, condemned for all eternity. And think, Jesus was offered dominion over all of the kingdoms of the world if only he would turn aside from obedience to God. But he chose death to right our wrongs because of the great love with which he loved us. Jesus said it is better to give 
than to receive. Are you glad this morning that Jesus practiced what he preached? That he gave it all for you? Have you taken that to heart? And have you decided what to do with it? The gospel demands a response. Do you believe it? If you believe that Jesus came and died so that your sins would be forgiven, then it should change your life. It should change your path. It should make the words of Christ precious to you and authoritative over you and a necessary reference for all that you are and all that you do. And over time, it should change you so that your life begins to look like that of Jesus. Christian, do you look more like Christ than you did a year ago? Does your life testify that you believe that it is better to give than to receive? How might someone look at your life or my life and see undeniable proof that we have love for the saint and for the sinner? That our obedience to God is not a static agreement with words on paper, but an all-encompassing pursuit of the likeness of Christ, who valued others above himself and humbled himself even to death for their sake and for the glory of God. You may not be destined to die for your faith like Paul, but don't count it out. Don't expect less from God than what he is able to do. Does that sound backwards? Does that sound wrong? It sounds like a terrible end. But what better end could there be than to look like Christ to the end? James wrote that we should count it joy when we face trials. Why? Because of what it produces. It makes us more like Christ. As we are running our race, seeking to finish well, whatever that looks like, Hebrews says that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith that we should consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you, so that we, may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him. Consider Jesus. Consider him perhaps for the first time, perhaps in a different light than you had before. Consider him daily that he is the one who will make all the difference. The difference between having nothing to show for all your efforts and knowing that you have finished this life well. Praise the Lord.